Hey, it's Jeff here. After working as an automotive tech for almost 25 years, I can honestly say that finding employment with the right shop has been the difference maker between loving what I do every day or hating my career choice. Let me tell you, I've been there, but I've also had jobs where work didn't really feel like work. I love the challenge of fixing cars. So loving what I do, that's the easy part. Finding a good place to do it in, now that's been the struggle. And that's where my friends at ProMotive knock it out of the park. They're a recruitment company specializing in jobs for our automotive industry. A-techs, B-techs, master techs, service advisors, managers, you name it. They are constantly looking for applicants in automotive to link them with available job postings at only the best vested shops around the country. ProMotive has a team of professional recruiters that can help you with your resume, prep you for the interview process, and negotiate the best pay and benefits package for you. And best of all, it's free to anyone looking to gain employment. Check them out at gopromotive.com slash Jeff. gopromotive.com slash Jeff. Just think, you could be just five minutes away from finding your dream job. We need the perspectives of as many human beings as we can so we can talk about it from every perspective we can so we can come up with some logical objective solutions to some of the major challenges that our industry is facing. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another exciting, thought-provoking episode of the Jada Mechanic Podcast. My name's Jeff, and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this journey of reflection and insight into the toils and triumphs of a career in automotive repair. After more than 20 years of skin knuckles and tool debt, I want to share my perspectives and hear other people's thoughts about our industry. So pour yourself a strong coffee or grab a cold Canadian beer and get ready for some great conversation. We are live. Well, yes. not live. We're, we're on the road to recording with yeah. with Mr. Jeff Compton. Yes. The, the Canucks are having a, a little beverage and dealing with technical difficulties. It's almost like we're in the shop. <laughs> so we we're getting back to it. We were talking about we were talking about podcasts, and we actually had an interesting conversation the other day because there was uh, another fellow podcaster made a comment to another fellow podcaster that I'm privy to that information back and forth the conversation, and they're like, the market is really getting flooded with with podcasts and the automotive thing. But I look at it as a good thing because for years we've talked about, you know, we need to start actually talking about the changes that we need, right? And the issues that we face and mm-hmm. why is it, why is there a technician shortage and why is so many people so disgruntled? Why is, why is this Canadian called jaded? Why is he so upset with the you know industry? And why has he been a rant lunatic online for 10 years about how things are not right? And, so, yeah. So it's, it's gotten, it's, I don't think it's hit the saturation point yet. It's no, no, no. And I think contextually, right. If, if you look at the number of mechanics, at least in North America, right. In, in Canada and the U S there's somewhere in the neighborhood of a million of us, give or take. If you look up the, the statistics between, and then I think both governments, both Canada and the U S I haven't looked at what, what it is in Mexico to, to do the whole bloody continent, but in Canada, US, it's mechanic, mechanical repair, and technician, fundamentally what, what goes on the tax forms, right? And between them, there's a ballpark of about a million, yep. give or take. So if there is, 
let's say there's a hundred podcasts of mechanic-led or technician-led car fixing focused. Yep. Not not the not the you know I just bought a broken Lamborghini. I'm going to fix it. Focus, but actual talk about the industry and trying to and and Luke's has got a great name. Changing the industry, literally, what we're all talking about yep. from different perspectives because we all have different life experience to this point in our careers. Yep. That perspective is an invaluable asset to those listening, not just for content for content's sake, but for actually changing the industry, right? You can, somebody very smart once told me in regards to vendors, and this was when I, when I first started my business as just work hard consulting, you you could have four times the amount of vendors that there are now. You could, doesn't matter what, what part of the dealership you service, you could have four times the amount of vendors and there still wouldn't necessarily be too many. Why? Because everybody has a slightly different perspective, slightly different tool or software or solution that can solve someone's problem. And there's always a packet of people that go, I need that. And that vendor, whatever it is, supplies it. Well, and the same thing applies in podcasting and media and content. Somebody somewhere needs that information for one reason or another, whether it's emotional support, whether it's uh, tips, tricks, tools, and techniques, whatever the case may be, those different perspectives from those different people can be of value to different people. Now, when you're on the subject of life experience, your how so give us your background, like because you're now a consultant, but yet you started. I, I'm a little bit of everything. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a couple weeks ago, so, still working in a power sports store, right? Yep. But you started yep. out as a tech very similar to me. You started out. At a Chrysler dealer. Correct. Yeah. A long time ago. It feels like forever ago. So I, my, my grandfather, so this is, this is going to go back to early days. My, I, I could probably drive a truck before I could walk. I, I stood between my grandfather's legs. So I stood between my grandfather's legs on Big Red, which was an old square body, uh, 2,500 Chevy. Yeah. Big Red. He had taken the box off the back and, and, and lattice work. Uh, some pressure treated or whatever it is and he'd lacquered and whatever as a bed of the truck and a big old plow on the front and we plowed our driveway my his his son my uncle's driveway and a whole bunch of other people in the streets driveway and I would drive and as that progressed I drove our little ride on tractor I would be the the kid in the passenger seat and and you know d-series dodge and I'd change gears with my left hand so from very very early on I fixed everything with him like I was a basically attached to the hip wherever my grandfather went I went and we fixed everything right we're talking early 80s or late 80s early 90s carb we pulled out and my grandfather was always you know the greatest way to clean a carb was always take the carb off and just put it in a vat of diesel and let it sit there yeah that you can't really get away with that now and it's also not quite the same yeah but We'd take it apart. We'd put it back together. We'd fix it. We'd clean it, whatever, whatever, whatever. And it started from a young age. So I started fixing things early. Mm-hmm. When I first got an opportunity, my grandfather walked me into a local crisis store who happened to be owned by Daryl Sly and former former Maple Leaf. And he, the two of them grew up together in the same town. And they, they spent a lot of time together over the years. And he helped me get my first job changing oil on Dodges. And... Uh, it just kind of progressed from there. So I up here in Canada, I got my license after after moving a couple of times. Folks will think back, okay, the challenge here in 
Canada, US thinking about wages, because that's something we'll, I, I imagine we'll get on on a more specific topic later. But I start, I, I went from making 50 grand a year as a 19 year old in a grocery store and conceptually. And this is like 22 years ago. I was making 50 grand a year as a 22 year old in a grocery store to making $18,000 a year as an apprentice. Yeah. And it wasn't even as, a, as an apprentice because I walked into that Chrysler store I push and broom, clean, clean out shit, and and I didn't do anything other than clean, basically clean, clean tools. Get you know, drive the shuttle bus around, you know, yep. meet customers, do this, do that. And Daryl was a was a cheap old codger. He was an amazing human being. He was a cheap old codger though. So we'd be fixing his house and driving his yep. tractor and the bulldozer around, and and that's where I started. And then so. You know, long story, make it even longer. Spent a couple of years at the Dodge store, did my first round, first two rounds. First, actually, I did all three rounds of school while I was at the Dodge store. I had to push. Like, I had to physically call the school to get to get into school. Yeah. That's a no- whole other topic altogether. Now, when he means school, he means apprenticeship training, if you've heard me reference up here. So that's what he means by school. Go ahead. Yes, sir. I, sometimes I forget that I got I to gotta make, make reference to the, the difference. So yeah, because they didn't want to send me to school. The service manager that was there at the time, just anyway, let, let's not, let's not. So I got, I got through the school. Uh, I came back from my third round of school and they didn't want to pay me anymore. So I was still making, I had finished my third round of school. So technically I was year three. It was early, but it was year three worth of education. And with the amount that I worked with our foreman and the greatest, the reason why I'm still in the trade or around the trade, that foreman, they were still wanting to pay me $8 an hour hourly. Never got paid overtime. Yeah, It was 40 hours a week. That's all I ever got paid, no matter how many hours I spent in the dealer. And they came back from the level three and they didn't want to pay me any more than nine bucks an hour. So I left, went to a Toyota store, finished my time. And my book, so to speak, at the Toyota store, wrote my license. So I got a major bump in pay going to that Toyota store. And then when I wrote my license, thinking, okay, I'm a licensed tech now. And they said, okay, yeah, we'll put you flat rate. At what wage? At your wage. What, excuse me? What do, what do, what do you mean at, at my wage? Well, yeah, we'll, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll take you from hourly to flat rate. You'll make more money. It's like the difference between yesterday and today is a piece of paper. Yeah not experience. I've progressed four years worth of experience and I now have a ticket to sign safeties. Yep. So that safety portion should get me a little bump, but making the same wage without the intricate knowledge of 10 years at Toyota does not mean I'm going to make more. It means I'm going to make less. They didn't like that very much. So uh, fairly shortly thereafter I left. Now they're great people. Now, I'm going to say that Toyota story because anybody that looked up, look at me up on LinkedIn and find out who the the Toyota store is. They're great people. They're wonderful people. But it didn't, it didn't match. Like these are the, these are the things we start to talk about as we talk about changing the industry. Like these are the kinds of conversations that some leaders are having unsuccessfully. There was no career path. There was no development path. It was, Hey, you need to get this done. Well, why? You need to get it done. What happens when I do get it done? Well, you get it done. Yeah. Those are the making no sense, right? I, I a little bit cluster there, but that is that is the kind of conversations that they're having and they've been having for decades. Like I'm not unique. You're not unique in 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 that upbringing through the trade. You're not the first per- So we need to change Yeah, you're not the first person that came out of their level 3 and you know, which of Rollington's purposes up here is is the big one. 
and and mm-hmm. w- you know walked out expecting to get like a five or six or eight dollar an hour bump and you get a, a dollar bump that's the reason that when i walked out of my level three where i was making 10 and i said okay i got an offer to go to the dealer for flat rate and um they're like oh why are you gonna go to the dealer and i'm like well, what did, what were you gonna pay me well, I was going to put you up to 11. And this is we're talking 2000. And I had, so my background is I'd worked for three years. I had a college degree from St. Sanford Fleming in heavy equipment and diesel tech, right? I had a degree. Mm-hmm. I worked in a truck shop mm-hmm. for three years doing anything and everything in the truck shop, right? Uh, road service, starters, alternators, rewire trailers. You know, I, I could do it. I understood. It was not hard for me to go from working on that to working on cars. But I worked in this tiny little shop in Bell's Corners in Ottawa where, you know, I was $10 an hour labor, doing all changes, doing tires. I would do the safety inspections on the car. He would walk over and look at it. Yay or nay. Not much input as to why. Um, I never touched a scan tool. That was something reserved for him. And uh, so when it was all done, when I finished my third and I'm sitting in a class with all these kids that come from dealers and I'm like doing really good on test scores. I'm doing really good in the labs. Um, and they're talking all the time as you know how it goes. And I'm like, what do you guys get paid? Oh, well, I'm at 15. But I said, oh, but you're flat rate. Cause I'd heard all these horror stories of flat rate. They're like, you're right. I'm flat rate. It's the best thing ever. Like <laughs> much work there is. And I'm like, Hmm. So when I came back and he was bumping me to 11, that's when I, I, I put my notice in. And that was the, that was the start of, you know, me actually getting what I feel more opportunity, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're, you were not the first person. That's funny that you say that they were going to, they were going to bump you from eight to eight flat rate. <laughs> Cause yeah, it, it was, it was, it was an interesting conversation. I, I recall. And now here, I want to have a question for you. And this is, this is, you know, I brought this up about a year ago when I spoke at Tito's and, and t-shirts Yeah, that you should never, ever, allow a technician to ask for a raise. You should never, as a leader, you should never let a technician act for a raise because the 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 end result is they've got a 50-50 opportunity, right? It's a 50-50. So you as a technician are going to a leader saying, hey, I'd like a raise. This is what I, based on blah, 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 blah. If they've done their due diligence and they're a good tech, they should know exactly what their production is for at least the last 90 days. They should know what they work. They should know what they fix. They should know what they've, their education level has bumped up. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. A, a great one's going to know that. A not so great one is going to go, I'm worth more. I need more money. Either way, both of them coming to you as a leader, that's a bad thing because if you say no, in all likelihood, in the next 30 days, you're going to get a notice or they're going to walk out your door giving their notice or they're just going to walk out the door. And here's the third, right. if they were given a hundred percent before, they don't ever give you a hundred percent again, right? It's no. called, it's called disgruntled employee syndrome. Number one, it's the, it's the perfect cocktail. Cause I, myself, I don't go and ask for a raise until I really feel like I deserve it. And I come full armed with like either, sometimes I come full armed with like, I've had another offer. Sometimes I come full armed with like, listen, everybody I know around here who I'm as sharp as they are is making just a bit more than me. I want to make what they make. And I'm here to talk to you. Mm-hmm. If they give me some BS excuse, I've heard it everything from, well, we just got a benefits plan uh, started to, uh, well, maybe when I come back from vacation, we can talk about, you come with me with any of that and it's a no. I was giving you a hundred before. 
all of a sudden my give a damn is busted. You know what I mean? You won't get a hundred from me after that. And that's a sad attitude to have. And it's, you know, I've taken flack from it, but it is what it is. If I come to you and I don't, and I ask because I feel I deserve, it's very hard to convince me that I don't deserve. That's human nature, right? It's got nothing mm-hmm. just tax. It's, it's an employee employer relationship on any business out there. It's, it could be coffee at Tim Hortons. It could be attack in your bay. If he comes and says, or she, I feel like I'm worth this. How do you talk them down from that without making them feel like they're not worth it? How do and you-, you know what? I'll play devil's advocate for a second because because I can because I've been on both sides of the coin and we'll get to it. But my desire from a leadership standpoint is you're coming to me subjectively for the most part. There is some objective information there, but for the most part, it's subjective, right? You're saying, I deserve. There is nothing wrong with that. In fact, I believe that you should at least feel that because you know your value, you know your worth, you know what you've done, so on and so forth. But this is where the career development portion of leadership needs to come into play. You reference back, okay, your employment agreement, these are the the basic stuff. Your employment agreement requires you to do this, 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 and this. Have you done those things in the last 12 months? The answer is yes. Awesome. At that point, it should be raise. Yep. But if the technician's going, I deserve this because I think or I feel, then the service, the, the leader should be going, well, I understand that. And I agree. You've definitely been putting in more work. But what is your education status? Did you hit that education level that we talked about nine months ago? Did you hit that production uh, output per month that we talked about 15 months ago? Did you do these things that we outlined meticulously in your career development plan? If there is a no in any of those, the deserve goes to the wayside. We look at the objective information. As a leader, there's far less of that going on than I would prefer because when you take the subjective shit out. Yeah. Techs will look at the objective stuff more often, not always, but more often to go, hey, if I complete my level two and I get that tranny specialty training and I go to school and I get it done, when I get back, that raise is going to be waiting for me. And by all means, if they come back and that raise isn't waiting for them, that is notice. Like, I have held, upheld my end of the bargain. I am busting my chops. I am going to school. I'm bettering myself. That's going to better the business by usually three to four X. These are basic promises. Like when you start to break anybody's trust, irrespective of technician or mechanic, you break anybody's trust on something so fundamentally easy to implement and do. Why? There's at that point, the quiet quit, the disgruntled work, the, the 80%, which was a hundred percent. Absolutely completely justifiable in that justifiable. I say I still have trouble with it because my internal would still want to give a hundred percent. I'd give a hundred percent until my notice and I'd be out. Yeah. But that's me standard issue. Not really. Yeah. Um, but that leads me into the next portion. I got, I'm going to diatribe and try to go through this. So I, I don't make a long story three times longer than it needs to be, but I left the Toyota store. I was stupid for nine months and I came back, and, and this is where a lot of things changed. I spent time in the U.S., and the day I came back from the U.S., I was on a plane. My grandfather died. 
while I was on the plane coming back home. So from that point, and that was August of 2008. I get back August 2008. My grandfather dies. I don't remember much, if anything. There's a black hole in my memory for about three months from that point, about three months forward. And that was hard. And that changed a lot of how my mindset was about the business, about moving forward as a, as a mechanic, all of the above. But I managed to get a flat rate gig at uh, another Dodge store in the city. So it'll be Vaughn, uh, Toronto, for those of you who don't necessarily know where Vaughn is. Uh, I worked flat rate there, working on Dodges from through through the one of the greatest collapses of the economy that we've seen until now. Different, but different. Fixing Dodges when they were in bed with Mercedes, not knowing what what way was up. <laughs> because that was when they put, and this is, uh, this is I'll, I've told this so many times, but I'll say it again. They put a, a three liter diesel from a Mercedes in a Grand Cherokee. Yes. And I got to fix them when nobody knew what it really was. When wiring diagrams uh, sometimes still had German on them. Yep. And they, and they weren't the right colors. They weren't the right. Yeah. I remember I was in that tenure too. I was in there. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a gong show. It was terrible. You, you almost hoped the dealer did not get the sprinter rights because they were such a turd. You know, they was. And we were working on sprinters. Did you get to work on them when they were the bananas where they were the extra long? Yeah. That like the super long first gens or whatever it was. Oh, so I didn't get to work on we, when I was at the dealer because the, the dealer in Ottawa I was at, they didn't get the, they didn't get the franchise. So they weren't allowed. When I hmm. moved back home, which is Kingston, I took a job at, Kingston Dodge, regretfully. And um, they had a Sprinter license and they had one guy that did them and they decided, oh, you're, you're a drivability guy, but we're not really going to, we got a guy that does that and we can't let him, we, we have to take care of him. So we're going to send you on Sprinter training. <laughs> and uh, I went, Sprinter what? And they went, Sprinter. <laughs> well, not, Toronto location. up at. uh, Oh, the college there for, for Chrysler training for the one class mm-hmm. there for three days. And all these kids, there was kids there, Joshua, like half my age that all they'd worked on at these big dealers was, was sprinters. They knew them inside and they, they were ripping turbos off. They were talking about triple squares and, and I'm like, triple one, huh? And what are you talking about? Like I've worked on caravans. I'm just here to like to, you know, I'm here mostly to see, I'm more interested in the common stuff. I don't want to touch these sprinters. Like, yeah. Replacing injectors left and right and having to figure out how to get them out because this was back when a time when when the injector style was new to North America. They'd been in in Europe forever, but they had never been exposed to North American climate and they had no idea what to do with themselves. Yeah. When you get one special service tool for the entire shop and then usually all six are seized. Yeah. So I came back oh. from, I came back from that course and the guy that was the dedicated sprinter guy was over there and he was doing like I think he, there was a sprinter that got towed in and he was over there doing a tune-up on a caravan and they tried to give me the sprinter and I went, well, what's my bump and pay for doing the sprinters? Oh, you don't get a bump and pay. And I went, I think you better have him do it then. And I went back over and I sat on my bed. Smart move. Right. And everybody was like, did you just do that? I'm like, yeah, I just did that. Yeah. You're going to, I come from, so here'd been my thing. I started the dealer in Ottawa and I quickly progressed real quick into being able to do the diag and the, and the, and the drivability and the programming and stuff like that. How I got good at that was I worked at a dealer second shift capital Dodge in Ottawa 
and I would be there on night shift, straight nights. So I'd start at about one o'clock and be there till 10. And I was straight time. And I would get handed everybody's comeback that left at four o'clock. At six, it would pull back in the parking lot, check engine light back on, and they'd throw it at me because I was straight time, right? It was just bat cleanup, fire control, whatever mm-hmm. you call it. So I got really quick with like, wow, I can actually diagnose some of this stuff, you know, because I had a background from the truck shop, all right? But I mean, you know, I could read a wire and diagram. I understand how power and current flow and all that kind of stuff. So I transitioned over to another dealer. I went to Orleans. And then when I was in Orleans, I got really good at it because there was a lot of it to do. And what happened was I would get handed everybody's comebacks. So that was when you go back to what you're talking about. Okay, did you do this training and you do that training? And that's how you bring value to your asking for a race thing. My my attitude laden response was that guy over there is a 20 year master tech and he just jammed a crank sensor in for a 720 DTC, which is no crank signal at the TCM, but the engine's running. He just did that, kicked it back outside. I customer picks it up, drives around the block. The cold comes back. You hand it to me. I don't have his training. I don't have his experience, but look at this. I just tugged on the wire and it broke where I know how to, where to tug on the wire and it broke. And Mm -hmm. I his comeback. Can I have what he's getting paid now, please? That's how Mm -hmm. I brought it back to them. Right. So I understand what you're saying from the, from the person bringing value. But I speak from a different perspective from a lot of texts where it's like, there's a lot of old wood. And sometimes, you know, somebody with a chainsaw comes in that's young and vibrant and, you know, fresh and um, makes a big mess of everything. And that's kind of how I did it. I don't necessarily think that everybody should do it that way. But that was always my rhetorical thing with how when you start to judge people on their training, on their production, whatever you want to call it. And you've heard my rants on this. Mm-hmm. If I can fix what he can't or what he doesn't want to, I'm at worth at least what he's getting paid, regardless of hours on the bench. hundred percent. And this is where, where all of those things collide, right? That's why I started the survey, right? The Renstrainers Wellness Survey. That's why I started the survey because there isn't a cohesive way to understand objectively mm-hmm. pay. Yeah. There's so much subjectivity to it in today's market that it's difficult for everybody to understand. But when you break things down at a a statistical level, patterns emerge. You were the person who has a ton of experience because you literally been, you've been swimming in shit and succeeding. So whilst you may not have the training, you have the OTJ training that's made up for it. So that's where your product, your production really comes into play. Like if you're working and this is, you know, how to how to calculate 10 years of experience in 2 years well you work 16 hours a day right every day 7 days a week you get you get a lot of experience very 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 quickly however the overlay of, of the stats that i have collected there's almost no overlap in income for training like there's no there's there's no there's so few outliers it's ridiculous it's way less than everybody anticipates for example and, and this is fairly and, I'm rounding numbers here because I don't remember exactly what they are because I just did another round uh, about a week ago, which changed everything because it was a larger dealer. But if you have your level one training and and you're at a dealer, so you're an automotive mechanic, you're at an automotive dealer in the continental US because I've got about 10 states now worth of information. If you get your level one, your basic training, you make no more than 40 grand a year. Doesn't matter whether it's hourly or flat rate. If you got your level two, so all of the intermediate level stuff and down, complete 
complete now is the important bit. Not spits and spats, but complete and down. It's 60 grand or less. Exceptions exist, but like super rare. And, and time is irrelevant. Time in trade is almost irrelevant by the time you hit level two complete. And level three, they start making 80 grand US or more. And the average income of those who have their level three complete is $110,000 a year, US. And the majority of those folks, there are some uh, hourly folks, but those are foremen uh, that I later found out. I could try to clarify because there's nowhere on the survey to clarify whether they're foremen or, or they're uh, uh, journeymen or whatever the case may be. But level three. So you look at the exponential value difference between in just in training. You've had it on the job, so it's difficult to quantify. And because you've moved even once, it doesn't matter whether you've moved one time or 15 times, it's difficult to quantify all of your information, but that's, which is why I preach journaling. But that level difference, think about it conceptually, level one is 40, level two is 60. Yeah. Average. Level three is 110. It's almost three times the value just because of training. So in your circumstance, you've got that training simply by sifting through shit. It's hard on the mental, but it's provided you an outcome after, say, five to eight years. Like, I can fix everything he fucks up. I can fix everything he fucks up. I can fix everything he fucks up. They've got 15 years more than more in the trade than I have, and they all have their level three. Why am I not making what they're making, right? And and, and to your point, you got to write it down. Like, the big thing here is if you've got a great memory like you do, Jeff – that's one thing, but most of us don't. Like, I've got the memory like a bloody goldfish. Like, ooh, there's a castle. Ooh, there's a castle. I got to write stuff down. So the techs out there listening, my God, if you're not writing down things like fixing someone else's comeback, write it down. Write down the your basic CCC and keep a log of that shit because that stuff is gold when it comes time to ask for a raise. Here's what I did. I went and every time I got a comeback, I went and printed the original RO of the car came in and, and then I took a hard cop, I took a copy, printed a copy of mm-hmm. what I did to repair it. And I had it in a notebook because when the races went through the shop, when the wait, well, don't, don't celebrate for me yet. I thought it was a brilliant idea. <laughs> Turns out it wasn't. When the races went through the shop and I didn't get the raise, I had the notebook, three ring binder with all these photos, copied ROs. And I went back and they were, Mrs. Jones is in four times for this, you know, check engine light fall. Jeff fixed it with somewhere, and, you know, uh, airbag light came coming on. Jeff fixed it with, you know, cleaning the ground, that kind of stuff. Well, I wish I still had that notebook. I don't know where it went. The last place I saw it was when I left it on the desk of the person that I was asking about the raise and was denied the raise. Mm-hmm. It's the last place I saw it. So, <laughs> and you know what? Because I think if I had it, it would just torture me now, right? So I, I don't, I don't need it. It's all up here anyway, right? It doesn't. I, I get you. I get you where that's coming from. But yeah, so you're you're right. But like I said, I, I've done some weird things. So before we get into into your, like you you mentioned your survey and you post. Yes. How did you go from from that? To getting into, because I, I feel like, and I don't know your whole story, I feel like you you did a quite a bit of time in dealerships, and a lot of what you're new now doing, correct me if I'm wrong, is to try and help dealers better understand the dynamic in the shop and how to make it. You talk about high HVLs, high value leaders, which I'd never heard of anything anybody mention that until 
listening to you. So how did you get from there, from just a tech? How did you transition into what it is you're doing so that we can keep talking what it is you're doing? We can, we can summarize by saying you and I both have had a whole lot of shitty people that are in that big chair that don't know what the fuck they're doing. They don't know the difference between their ass and a hole in the ground. But I'm pretty confident that both of us have had at least one person in that chair that cared about us as individuals and as the person helping their business. And that person, for me, in my career, I've had I've had the luxury of having about three. I say about three because one was kind of there, but those three individuals, if you get to experience what I would call a high-value leader in your career as a mechanic, it's life-changing. Like, it's absolutely life-changing. And those mechanics out there that get to work for one can attest to it. Because they go from shop to shop to shop to shop to shop with absolutely dismal performance. They feel like they are the ones that are, that's wrong. You know, maybe I'm the one that's all this bad. Maybe the industry is fucked, whatever the case may be, until they get to that one shop where everything just works and how much it affects their mental well-being in and outside of work. And and to try and answer the question, I came across, you know. I came across an article January of last year. And the reason why I came across the article January of last year is I realized I was operating on a, on a big ego and I thought I could fix the world. And I thought I could fix everything because, because I'd been in automotive for so long and seen so many things and been in, been in all the positions in fixed ops that I knew how to fix it. I still had that young man's like, I'm getting old. I'm going to be 40 this year. I still had that young man mentality that I can fix everything. I knew everything. That, that adage where you know everything, move out before you, you know what I mean? So I realized that I was not operating a way that my grandfather would be proud. Of. I was still operating on the pretense that I knew everything, that I could fix everything, and that the goal should be money. When I realized that a lot of things in my career happened because people cared about me as a person, not just a mechanic. They cared about me, what my family was doing. They cared about the environment I was working in. They they cared about my well-being, irrespective of, of how well or how poorly the work was getting done. And I realized that after talking to some technicians, this is prior to creating the, the, the Rentsters podcast and, and the Rentsters business, that I started talking to technicians genuinely, not from a, hey, you want to shoot the shit. It's a Let's let's talk about your experience and let's break it down a little bit more. And I started to realize that a lot of us have a lot of shared life experience in the shop, especially from a dealership perspective. Exactly. And how much some of that, well, how much most of our life experience in the shop uh, uh, shapes what we are outside the shop as well. And how much inside the shop, the working environment affects us mentally and how then that affects our production. So I thought... You know, my grandfather, both of them were major pillars of the community. They spent basically their entire lives giving back to the community as a, as a job, as a career. It's like, well, they're role models for me. I look up to them. I think about them every day. They did all of this great stuff for the community that ended up benefiting them. Not selfishly, they just did for the community and it benefited them and their family. Well, I'm running a business. Doesn't that make sense that I should be doing that for my business? Makes sense. So what is it that I can do? What part of my life or how my life has transpired can I do? What can I do to give back to the community that has given me 20 years of benefiting me as an individual and then subsequently benefiting my family? 
So rolling that all in, into a thing, and I'm, I'm humming a hon about this, and I come across the article that was made by the, the CDC in 2016, the statistic on suicides. And it happened to be suicides broken down by profession. Yeah. And after reading about five lines of the first paragraph, the summary of this article, finding out the mechanics are in the top three professions in the continental U.S., for suicides. I damn near fell off my flo- off my chair. I cried a little. I had I, I probably didn't talk for a couple of days. My wife was like, what's going on? It's like now like things are just kind of coming together, all the things. And this brings me back, and, and I've shared this before. I share that I started in a Dodge dealer mm-hmm. as a young man. And I shared that we had five apprentices and a and probably the greatest foreman that I could possibly have had at that time kicked my ass into gear. Well, after a year of being there, one of us, one of the five apprentices, hung himself. I hadn't thought about that in God only knows how long. At the time, I was floored. I was emotional. But the entire shop just worked. Yeah. Like, we continued to work. Like, I came in on a Monday morning, and I found out Monday morning. And I can I remember vividly the Cheryl was telling me, it's like, because I, I was asking, where is he? Where is he? And it's like, he hung himself yesterday. And I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do as a young, like, I I. I had death in the family before, so I had somewhat experienced it, but I had never been outside of my family, but still really, really close. I didn't know how to process. And I guess I really didn't at the time. And then I started to look back. Once I read that article, I started to look back on all the things on how that moment affected, on how all of the hearing about the suicides over my career that had happened, all of the, the mental, the anxiety, the stress leaves, the depression, the, the eating disorders, the alcoholism, the drug abuse, all of those things that happened around me in my career. And I'm just putting these things together to go, oh, shit, I need I, I need to be doing something. I need to be doing something. And I didn't know what and, and I'm thankful at the time I got introduced to a whole bunch of different people. I got introduced to, to Joe Chambers and Eric Howdy and um, Service Drive Live on Sunday mornings. I got introduced to a whole bunch of other people in that that community, uh, big one was Corey Smith. Corey Smith intru- introduced me to, oh, I'm going to forget his name right now, but it doesn't matter because he's, he's a, he likes to be remain nameless anyway. And I had a 45 minute conversation with Corey and this gentleman, and he's so intelligent. We came up with how, how can I, how can I remove the sh- subjectivity of the shop and provide something objective to service leaders to improve the environment that the technicians are working in? So that they remove the ancillary stressors of the shop so they can just focus on the job. Right. Because it's not that someone really smart told me, if you manage, if you fix the little things, the large things will fix themselves fundamentally. So you can, as any great technician can do, you walk into a new shop. If you get the opportunity, you probably don't get necessarily get the opportunity to do that when you start in a new place. When you walk in a new shop, you've never been, even if you don't have any skin in the game. And you can look around, you can immediately see probably a dozen things just standing at the shop door, right? You can look at the, and look at, see a dozen things that just need to get fixed. And some of them are free, like clean, yeah. or some of them are like, that hoist is broken that you can see from over here. That's probably a $10,000 repair, but I bet you that tech struggles every day to lift a car. Mm-hmm. You look over there, you see paints completely peeled off of the ramps on the alignment rack. And all the peelings are getting into into the bearings on the on the turntables, making it hard to turn the wheels when you're doing alignment. So that affects 
maybe it only affects point one on alignment, but it affects on every single one. Yep. So coming up with the survey was my way of saying, let's look at the environment. Let's remove the the little things, the, the five, 10, 15, 50 things that are in the shop that are cheap, free, or manageably budgeted. Remove the, the bullshit stress so they can do the job. Yep. And then what's happened? We started looking back on, on some of the stuff. I've had the opportunity to talk with a few of them. Just cleaning the shop. And I don't mean scrubbing the floor, but just cleaning the shop, like a full-on move the toolboxes, put all the special service tools away, make sure things away properly, throw out the stuff that never gets used, like hasn't been used in 20 years and will never get used again, put it on a wholesale whatever to small shops to buy, whatever. Get rid of everything, clean everything down to the walls and have everything clean and put everything back. See what happens to your morale. There's two dealers that have done that and the only thing they did was clean. And they literally added 10% production that following month. Crazy. Can, can you, like, conceptually, you've been in shops with 20 techs. Oh, yeah. Can you think, can you add 10% to 20 techs? <laughs> and the only thing you did was clean? Yeah, big chunk of And that's right. So you think, okay, then talking them through the last little bit, because I went, okay, how do I find out more information that's more detailed? Well, I started coaching which is just another form of therapy, it seems to be, because I've been called a therapist a couple of times now. It's just listening. It's just listening. Yep. Texts just want to be listened to. And this is where we full circle back to podcasting, why perspective is so important. We want to be listened to. And even if it's just out in the world and nobody's listening to it, we feel like we've vented enough in a, in a, in a detailed enough way to say, okay, I've said my piece. Or someone's listened to my piece and maybe somebody somewhere will go, okay, huh, we'll do that in our shop. We'll, we'll fix that in our shop or whatever the case may be. But And to see the mental positivity come out of it, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. I, um, I wanted to add broken marriages to when you said about the, you know, suicide, eating disorders, uh, alcoholism, oh. drug addiction, yep. so on and so forth, because... I literally, and I'm not, I'm not with the woman anymore, but I mean, hadn't been for a long time. I'm amazed that anybody put up with my garbage when I would come home ranting and raving nightly about the injustice mm. that I felt I was on the victim of all day at the dealership, right? It didn't matter if I had a good day and I made 14 hours, I immediately grumbled that I'm only going to probably make, watch, they'll give me only six tomorrow. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's still a great average. It's not, nothing wrong with that. Right. You, 22 days. is It's a good average. You're, you're getting paid more than you're there. Cool. It's amazing that she put up with me as long as she did. And I was to the point where I would, I can remember meeting her friends. We go to a Christmas party and I'd be like, Oh, I hear you're a mechanic. And you know, Oh, I, I, you get the questions. Well, I'm, oh, that's the worst. When a party full of people you've never met find out you're a mechanic, all you're doing is diagnosing shit over the phone or while you're at the party all night, right? Going to these 20 minute rants about, well, this is why you had this, you know, because I was at the time when I work at a dealer, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an advocate for the dealer, right? I feel like if you don't have a good experience at the dealer, it's because you don't know what's really going on and there's probably something wrong with you. Like we all go to work every day, work really hard to do the best job that we can. So you probably can't be satisfied. And then we would have a conversation about it, right? Because, mm -hmm. or they would tell me, well, I got a car and I take it to my guy and he can't see any, and I'd be like, it's a Honda and it does what? Intermittently just shuts off. Did you know that there's a ignition which recall? No. 
did your mechanic not tell you about that recall? No. Are you sure you're going to a mechanic or are you just going to somebody really stupid? And that was, was my candor. That was my attitude. People would meet me as that first impression and go, this guy's hardcore about like this, the way he thinks. It's amazing that I survived it in the sense that, you know, I came out and was able to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Now you're going to ask me, Jeff, what's the light at the end of the tunnel? I got it a flat rate mm. because it was so much of like, and you talk about the toxic and the stuff for me, so much of it was based on, it, it was such a numbers game, right? I mean, I, I had my best day ever. Josh was 28 hours. I did it on a Saturday. That's no carryover. Mm-hmm. I walked in on a Saturday morning, the stars aligned, Haley's comet flew by, everything went right. Everything was a yes. Every car that came in was like ripe for neglected services. It had diagnostic on it. It was like crank sensors. It was oxygen sensor. It was like bang, 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 tune up. I had four cars going on four hoists. I had apprentices running around flushing this and doing that. Was I ever going to make a day like that again? No. Is it a realistic example of, of the industry? No. It's like I said, it's a moonshot. It's a once ever mm-hmm. but to walk in and make 28 on Saturday, a Saturday, no less. And then to have to come in Monday though, because you had carry over. You walk in, you walk into a customer concern on the 3000 kilometer, uh, SRT challenger or something you get, like that. You get handed four tires to do waiter. <laughs> Got 6,000 K on it. Could you it's see? like a big kick in the teeth or rather probably a frozen boot to the balls. It's, it's so, so you've covered you've covered a, like a whole bunch of stuff in there that that is important for a lot of folks to really get detail out of there. One, I am not normal in that I like flat rate, mm-hmm. but only only if you have a high value leader. Right. Period. If they are not a high value leader, you will never make proper money on flat rate, and that's why hourly is doing what it's doing currently. Yeah. Now, the challenge is, after talking with a lot of service leaders to this date, from a, a, a vendor, quote-unquote, point of view, the opinion of hourly techs and the data of hourly techs, not good. Mm-hmm. Not good at all. Because major the majority of them can't produce, so they're not going to produce whether they're on flat rate or hourly. Because either they don't have the drive or they don't have the intellect. Mm-hmm. One or the other. For the most part. Not completely, but for the most part. The challenge then becomes if they don't have the drive, but they have the intellect and they get screwed when they're on flat rate, perhaps. See my hand go up? It's again because it's Russell Wickham just left flat rate and he's going to do everything he possibly can to never go back to flat rate ever again. Because he's had so many poor experiences in his career where it just doesn't work. Doesn't matter how great a diagnostician it is. It doesn't matter how great a teacher or a team player he is. Getting those freaking Chevy trannies or Chevy engine repairs where they pay five, six, seven, eight hours and he's on it for you know a day, day and a half, two days because of like there's only so many hours in the day and only so many hurdles you can come across. He's not alone in it. Yep. But the same end of the spectrum, had he had a high value leader that looks at, okay, this individual is literally going to bat for us on Sundays to try and get this stuff done for our customers, 
to give them a customer experience that they're not going to forget to make sure our, our entire business runs smoothly. Let's put something together that works for him so he can continue to produce well for us. Right. right? That's, that's a, that's, that's a high value leader kind of statement. They have to think about the individual. And I say personalization at scale for a reason. It's hard to have different pay plans for every individual that's in a shop, especially when you got a big shop, you got 40 techs. It's awfully hard to have more than one pay plan, but sometimes you got to do it. Yeah. It's, it, it is what it is. Yeah. The flip side, because that, I talk find about, that all, you, you talk about, you know, you're talking about somebody coming home every day, going back to your statement about. The, your your lady who put up with you for so long, that's a challenge for service leaders and baymates alike, yep. right? Your baymates experience, your baymates were experiencing your negativity as well. Not just your, not just your, right? So how much does a leader affect the shop? And it's, like I said before, it's life-changing. You get somebody who actually cares about the individuals on the shop floor, it's life-changing because that person would have come to you and it's like, hey, you did 50 hours this week. What are you grumpy for? Mm-hmm. Genuinely, not not in a way of disdain or, or, or conceited or condescension or any undertones at all. It's like, you made 50 hours a week for the last four weeks. You had an off day yesterday and you made six hours in, in the 10 hours you were here. You had one off day. I understand it was a challenge and we're going to try and help you out where we can, but you're crushing it. So why are you grumpy? Like your, like your bay mate just came to me with his notice because he can't stand working around you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Having the open conversation, like have these conversations. It's Im- And the alternatively, you're looking back on it going, how did she put up with me? There's a lot of folks out there that don't have the emotional or intellect capable of self-reflecting the point where, it was it was purely you looking at the only the negative, not all of the positive. I find what tends so, to drive people though to to the situation of like we're discussing where that attitude is, I find it so two part answer. When you talk about a high value leader and somebody that wants to see success and happiness on the on their sales their their staff on the floor, the techs on the floor. Mm-hmm. I have never in my twenty some years seen that at a dealership. I, I've seen it firsthand in independence, but the culture seems to be at the dealership is that traditionally a lot of dealers that I have been exposed to interacted with, talked to, they don't employ high value leaders because for somebody like you, what you just given the example of wanting to fix that, wanting to, well, they don't necessarily have the same kind of skin in the game. They're not the ones that are able to financially make the decision to reward that person. So what I tended to see in my experience at the dealer was we really rewarded some of the worst techs that we had employed in terms of quality uh, training, diligence. Um, we hear talking about like, you know, a couple of the podcasts, guys that are not willing to sign up now for the training to get to master level, certified level, because it brings with it more recalls, more junk work, right? And I can turn more hours or even sometimes I can turn more hours at a less pay per hour and still take home more money at the end of the year because I avoided all that shitty work. I got it. And the mental fatigue that that work comes with. So Joshua, I got to tell you, I saw number one producers almost everywhere where I was in a dealership were always people with that exact attitude. I don't do the Mm -hmm. hard stuff. I turn and burn. I do Mm -hmm. the whole hanging fruit. I get really creative with the pen I don't wait for the brakes to be completely fucked. I sell them now. 
because if I don't sell them now, I probably won't get a chance to sell them because the next time that it comes in, it doesn't matter if I have it down as a wreck, it's going to go to somebody else because it's too hard out front for them to logistically make sure that whoever had wrecks last time, it goes to the next tag. And that's a whole other, we can talk about that on another episode. But my point is, is that those kind of texts that I saw were the ones that got celebrated. The ones that got, so when you when you go back and you say, well, you got 50, you're killing it. Why why are you so grouchy? Well, because that POS over there hits six. Just got my gravy. Hit 60 consistently and and did, you know, didn't have to yank a training, didn't have to tear that harness out to find that broken wire, didn't go through 10 test drives with Mrs. Smith trying to track down this intermittent thing. They just took the low-hanging fruit. So mm-hmm. high-value leader, I'd, <laughs> I'd love to see one in a deal. So here's, here's a question for you, because you may or may not know of your own career. And I, I implore, uh, I, I, I hope anybody listening to this thinks about this themselves. If they're in a shop where they're really happy right now, or the shop that you were the happiest at, and then think about all the shops that you were unhappy at. Was the shops that you were unhappy at and led, theoretically, led by promoted service advisors? And were the shops that you were happy at the ones where technicians were promoted to service managers? Think about that for a second. Yeah. Because by data, not because I, I don't know what some of these folks are like in person, on the shop floor, when it's skin in the game, tech to leader. But from a data perspective that I have, the ones that are absolutely crushing it were technicians. That became... The ones that understand the struggle of being on the bench and the bullshit that we have to deal with so they can empathize with the challenges of the day can then lead those people because they can look at Jeff wrenching on that Chevy going, he's going to lose his fucking shirt on that thing. I know he is. Yeah. So you walk out to him and say, please do the proper job, follow it by the book, do your proper QC, and I'll make sure you're getting taken care of. Yeah. Not, I'll get taken, I'll not, that'll take care of you on the next one or whatever. I'll make sure you'll get taken care of on this one. Yeah. Because the only people that are going to understand that that's, existing that's happening and be in the moment to one minute manage are the ones that were techs. Yeah. So the best service manager I ever had had been a tech. Now I'll tell you that he was, he was hated by the rest of the managers within the dealership. Hated, hated because he, he spared them no rod. If sales was dropping the ball and couldn't sell a car because they, he would, he would, tell the fixed op, he would tell the dealer principal, he'd tell them all, your prices are too high. I have, we're, we're in Ottawa. We're servicing cars, vans, trucks sold all over Ottawa. They're all coming in all the time. Mm-hmm. Warranty work, service work. We're literally in Orleans. We're at people that drive to the other side of Ottawa to buy a van because our sales department, Mrs. Smith told me so. She blew her out of the waiting room with what they wanted to charge her and how they wanted to treat her to buy the same caravan she could drive across the city and get. He would, he would have those conversations, right? Before they would ever start to even get to what service needed to do better, he could show you the numbers on how the only thing that was keeping the dealer afloat was how aggressive we were in the service department to sell as mm-hmm. much as we could. So he was not well-liked. 
but he was the only service manager I've had in a dealer situation that went to bat for me. You know what I mean? Now, and and that's this there is are a, some folks that I have found that were were either porters or service advisors or anything but a technician. They they are there, but there is not many in that chair that understand the true struggle of being armpit deep, covered in hot shit, yep. touching hot exhaust, fixing something you don't want to fix, and it be something that you know you're going to lose your shirt on. The ones that truly understand what that feels like are going to do, in theory, are going to do everything they possibly can to make sure you, the person that's doing it, are taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, and that was the dealer that I was at for a long time that I was – I mean, I came home and still had the same gripes and grievances with, with my, with my girlfriend at the time. Right. She was the one that listened to me because the culture, I won't want to say that the culture was toxic, but it was culture was, it was always felt like you had half the side of the shop could, would, would do a lot of the low hanging fruit could turn a ton of hours. And then you had a core group on the other side of the shop, you know, intermingled that really did the problem solving. And it was a constant race to try and catch the other side of the shop. And what changed it for us was when he implemented that, at least when it was retail, he couldn't do it when it was warranty. He brought in the diagnostic charge that paid us an hour and a half for every hour that we were on it. So then the case started to come a little bit closer together. Cause even if he whooped you on 20 hours of uh, like ahead of you on pay hours turned, your paycheck might be just about the same as his. If you got, if you were lucky and got a lot of retail diag that week. Right. And then you could compare mm-hmm. paychecks. That was the only way I saw it get incentivized to where that actually that guy wanted to consider doing what I did. And it helped with some of the, but you know, we weren't 50% of the work was at least 50 was warranty. So you didn't get it. You know what I mean? It, it's still, so while they didn't dispatch to that guy over there because they knew he would never fix it. It get dispatched to us. He'd pull another steering rack. He'd pull another, whatever, right. To, Mm-hmm. Four thousand K service, right? Transmission flush, driveline service. It was great. Tune ups, like they'd sell tune ups and fuel so cleaning. You brought up something interesting there. Did you ever track your mix? Like truly track your mix? No. So the farthest I ever tracked, or the most I ever did to journaling, was I wrote down every day what I did in a notebook, three ring notebook, what it was supposed to pay, and I had my hours tab- tabulated at the end of the day, and. So it'd be like, and I was lucky because if I spent three hours on a wiring repair under warranty, say I had to pull, gut the interior, find the splice underneath the carpet that was all rotted for the SCM, fix that. D-pillar on a caravan when the CAN bus went down. Yeah. Yeah. If I had to do all that and I had three hours in it, I could write out my story and I could write right in the bottom of my story when I was inputting it with the keyboard, three hours. And the next day I was paid that three hours. I never had a situation where they didn't pay me under warranty the time that I had into it. Did they get paid the full amount? Don't know. Never asked. It wasn't, you know, I just knew if I walked in and it was like, I tabulated that I, sh- I, I hit eight, four today. When I walked in and there was my hour sheet stuck in my toolbox when I got in the morning, I could look at more days than not. It was pretty close to what I had written down. What made me quit mm-hmm. that job was they docked me half an hour for a break inspection that I performed. But then I went to lunch when I was supposed to go to lunch. The customer was not tabled as a waiter, but they were a waiter. So when I got back from lunch, the van was out of my bay. Cool. Somebody had finished it. No problem. It was his comeback anyway. But I didn't get paid my 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 inspection. Mm-hmm. 
So that that morning it was that's all that's a that's a tough nut to swallow. So that was right for anybody. The principle of it, half an hour, half an hour, less than twenty bucks at the time. You couldn't pay me twenty bucks. Okie dokie, no problem. I walked right back out to my I didn't say I quit. I walked back out to my toolbox. I locked it. It was eight fifteen. There was two cars sitting in the in I had two bays. Tore apart, wiring harness ripped out of them for repairs. One had an ABS module. It was one ABS module waiting outside. I'm in for a caravan. And uh, it was coming up on Long Creek and I went home. I did an interview at the dealer back here. I got the job. Mm-hmm. And I went back in and I said, am I getting a half hour? No, I told you not getting a half hour. Okay, cool. That's my notice. Do you want me to finish out my two weeks? or? And people think, well, you're being petty. Or... And there's been times, I think, if I'd have stayed, where would I have been in that dealer by now? I might have been headed somewhere. I might have made a foreman role, an official foreman role, not an unofficial foreman role. That's a different conversation. But my point was, I'd seen enough to know that that point five wasn't going to break anybody. It wasn't a principle because I'd seen it like, we'll pay that guy for not fixing the car. Mm-hmm. I do the inspection as I'm asked to do. And you don't pay me the 0.5. That's how you treat me. This is what I mean. So high value leader. And that's where we get into leaders, right? Because you're talking about that is, that is principle. Yeah. If someone's not willing, if it's on the work order, if a work order comes into the shop signed by the customer, Mm -hmm. break inspection, there is a price tag next to it. Unless it's a comeback, that's a different story. But if it's a break inspection and it's a not a comeback or it's a comeback and somebody else is doing it because the person's comeback, whose it is, isn't there. If you're doing an inspection, it's no different than any other job. Yeah. If it had to been a, a, a diag scan or, or, or tires or what, you get paid. Mm-hmm. Period. But it means if they're willing to do that on that, it means they're willing to do that elsewhere. And you may or may not know it's happening. Yeah. And I've heard that story too. It's unfortunate, but it happens. It doesn't happen, thankfully. The break inspection not being paid has happened to me. Mm-hmm. And it's happened to me more than once. And it's there's, you know, they are part of the re- the foundation reasons why I'm no longer at those stores over my career. But if you're willing to do that, because what that it's effectively doing is you're taking money out of somebody's family's pocket. Exactly. It's theft. It's unacceptable. It's theft. It, it's, it's unacceptable. If you do the work, you get paid. Yep. It's that simple. Now, are there caveats and exceptions to that? Yes, but that should not be up to somebody else to decide about your money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? That, that's, that's, that's my line. Because there's, there's, there's more than once that I've gone out there and, and spent <laughs> three and a half on a customer's car and only charged them three. Right, I'm doing a wire repair or getting to the bottom of diag because maybe I felt. But it's your choice. Yes, it's my choice. Right, it's my choice, not somebody sitting in an office, not somebody that had been a tech who became a manager who all of a sudden seemed to forget how that must have made him feel and decided to do it to somebody else. So when you talk about your high value leaders and people that had been techs, there's where I struggle with that because I've worked for guys like that, that also seem to get really convenient amnesia and forget about (laughs) fucked, but then it perfectly was okay for them to do the fucking to someone else. Pardon my language. I'm, I'm getting worked up. I don't, I, I hypocrisy to me is the, is the, is such a, a human 
flaw that I, I can't stomach it, especially in this industry. It's just like, it just, it just eats at my core, right? Just eats at my core. So, question. I heard this recently and it, and I've started to use it a lot because it's, it's so, it's so incredibly used in our industry. These people in that chair, especially, and, and the service advisors as well, as well, they say sorry for things. You know, they frequently say, I, I'm sorry that, that this happened. I'm, I'm sorry that this happened or I'm sorry, whatever. They just, they're, they're apologizing. Yeah. But apology without change is manipulation. Yes. Yep. That is, I think, one of the core root fundamental evils of our industry. We have a whole host of people apologizing, but not changing a thing. Mm-hmm. We have technicians apologizing for poor workmanship yep. that don't change, don't get educated, don't get trained. We have service advisors who apologize for not booking the job properly. Oh. And going, I'm sorry, I'll get you on the next one and not changing. We have leaders who go, I'm sorry, I, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, and not changing. Yep. Stop apologizing if you're not going to fucking change. Amen. Period. Amen. I'm getting worked up. <laughs> so, so that's where, I mean, I love what you're talking about and I love what you do and I, I follow you a lot and I listen and I, I mean, I try to, but I, I'll tell you right now. Josh, what I struggle with sometimes is I, I see so much of what you're about directed at, I'm going to say it, some of the biggest offenders in this industry for how they tr- create this culture of how some techs are treated. Do you understand what I mean? So mm-hmm. I, I, I adore you. I, I really respect what you're doing. And I, I mean, it it's, takes takes big guts to do what you're doing. But I feel like sometimes, man, you're, you're aligning yourself with too many of the enemies. If you know what I mean. I understand that. Yeah. I understand that. And I think that's okay. Yeah. Because that might- Because there has to be somebody, there isn't enough people with our kind of experience that has sat not just behind the bench, mm-hmm. with enough time behind the bench and enough time in the chair or in the drive to say, these things exist in the service drive. These things exist on the shop floor. These things exist in in the big chair these are the challenges that we face in all three key areas. How do we work as a team to fix it? The challenge is a lot of the perspectives, and there's nothing wrong with having perspective, but like saying sorry without changing, if you're going to talk and not do something about it, you're just talking yeah. to hear yourself speak. I am giving everything I possibly can, and and to the point too much that it's sacrificing my time with my family. I am doing everything I possibly can to shed light on the stuff that both sides need to change. And it's from my perspective, it's easier for technicians to hear another technician say you fucked up than in another another service manager saying you suck. Yeah. You are the one that should have caught the quality control. You are the one that fucked up and made a, a comeback. You were the one that did that job knowing you didn't have the training, having the big balls to try it, think you're the the best thing since sliced bread, screw it up, cause epic havoc for a customer to have epic havoc for the service, a whole entire service department because you've got a service advisor, you've got BDC, and you'll have a service manager that's all upset because you had a comeback. 
because you didn't have the balls to say, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have overstepped. I should have done the training. I shouldn't have taken the job, period. That's that's one example. The other side of the coin is Mr. or Mrs. Leader. Why did you allow that technician that job? Oh. Why didn't you do your due diligence on the dispatching end of things to make sure that technician did not get that job? Yeah. Both sides of the conversation need to be having. The challenge is being allowing yourself to be yourself and not be filtered, not be put down by saying, oh, you." and, and I'm glad you said it because there are those that don't have big enough balls to say it to my face. Say, you're talking to the wrong people, man. It's them that's got the problem, not us. You're right, but you're also wrong. The folks that need to hear it the most are the ones that aren't fucking listening. Yep. You're not wrong. I, it, you make a good point and you talk about, well, why did it dispatch that way? Well, like we, we've run off all our good fucking techs, the tech that we had that would have solved that problem or would have, you know, done the transmission and not had the quality control issue. Well, he got, he, he's like Russell Wickham. He's, he's fed up, mm-hmm. you know, he's about to roll his toolbox out and he's going to go somewhere else. This is the problem is the, the, the workflow keeps coming in. That doesn't stop. We don't stop selling cars. They don't stop breaking. We don't stop making appointments. It keeps coming in. All these techs are leaving, right? That's the reality. They're, they're moving. They're either leaving dealerships or they're leaving the industry, right? Or they're leaving shops. But I mean, there are a lot of them are leaving dealers, right? Because it, and it's a situation I keep saying, well, we can't pay you for that under warranty. We can't pay your diag. I, I have lived and died by this creed for as long as I can remember now. And I've said it to every service manager in the dealer. I've said, no, you can pay me. You may not get paid, but you pay me, right? You gave me a job and told me that I would get paid for doing it. I completed the job. The contract is X amount of time. It's spent to fix it. Nobody else could fix it. It's been back four times. I fixed it. You're going to pay me, right? And I've had guys literally like, Joshua, I'm not kidding. I said, I've said, get it out of your pocket. I had a service advisor one time. This is a stupid story. Customer comes in. Lights flashing twice as fast on one side as the other, right? So, so we all know what that normally means, right? So he says, if it's a bulb though, she doesn't want to pay to change the bulb, but she needs to know what's wrong. Okay, okay. So I go back to the thing. I pull the tail lamp out, bulb's blown. I put the tail lamp bulb back in, go around front, give him back the keys. 15 minutes, point three, right? He doesn't pay me that time. He says, I can't pay you that time. It's only a bulb. I said, how would you, I have diagnosed it, which was what it was on the sheet Task to do if I didn't remove that bulb and do it. How would I have done it? Well, I don't know. Cool. Then you owe me that money. He did not charge the customer the money. I made him get it out of his pocket and pay me. I feel like we as an industry need to start doing that more. So people understand. There's a, that's what unapplied labor is for. That is what is it? That is what it's for. When you want to give a customer a break or you want to show good faith or you want to build trust or or any one of the positive customer experience words that you can throw at the service department if you want to do that for a customer great fine and spectacular but don't shortchange the person doing the bloody work right but maybe he'd already used up his allotment for unapplied time maybe he wasn't have a service manager yeah maybe he was the one that had already told him i don't know right but my principle was there was no way i was going to give the answer that she wanted Till I did my repair, my inspection, my diag, whatever you want to call it. There was no way she was going to get the answer that she had come and tasked him with getting. 
that's what she got. It's not the technician's fault. He can't show value in the 15 minutes of, that it was billed to inspect the tail lamp, prove the bulb was bad, and put it back outside. That's not the tech's fault. That's your problem with your service writer of not being able to explain to the customer because their answer, you know how that goes, Josh, is, well, my husband can put a bulb in it. Why is your husband not going to check the bulb? And, and this is where this, the other side of the coin, or the third side or the fourth side or the fifth side of the coin I'm getting on here. But we have a, a and, and this is a stretch, and I'm going to try and I'm going to say something that's stretch and then bring it back. So I don't believe that we have a technician shortage just because we have a technician. I believe we have a technician shortage because we have a, a lack of training in the service drive. Mm-hmm. I think that is the root of our evil. Yep. And the reason is if that service advisor had been properly trained and coached by a high value leader, that customer would have known that the instant that that work order was written and dispatched the shop and the car went in the shop, there's a diagnostic charge. If we find that the bulb is blown, it's going to be $14.95 or, or, or $29.95 or whatever the case may be to diagnose that it is, in fact, a bulb failure. If that car had been in your bay for two hours because you go, oh, it's not a bulb. You pull the socket. The socket's corroded to shit. Yep. But then you also notice that there might be a broken wire or some rub through. It's like, let's see, let's see how far down this rabbit hole goes of, of disaster. If they didn't want to pay for a bulb, but the husband could do the bulb, let the husband do the bulb and find out that it's is or isn't the bulb. Otherwise, you're paying for the diagnostic fee for the car coming in the shop. We're here to, re- to diagnose, repair, and maintain vehicles. That is what we as mechanics are designed to do. Fundamentally, there is nothing else to our job. Nope. Diagnose. Repair or maintain. If the car is in the shop, that is what we are doing and we get paid to do that. If it comes in the shop and we don't get paid, that's a problem because that's now a broken contract. Yeah, exactly. If the car comes in the shop, it's an agreement that you are paying for diagnosis, repair, or maintenance. In that circumstance, you're being paid to diagnose. There should be a diagnostic fee for it to come in the shop or an understanding that you know it's a minimum charge of $59.95, minimum charge of an hour, hour and a half, whatever it is, and they agree or not. And if the, the then they go, hey, it is a bulb. The customer then goes, well, how how much is it? Well, it's on the house day. We'll take care of the technician. Yeah. yeah. Bada bing, bada boom. Bada bing, bada boom. Like it's that simple. And please, but without the the proper high value, the high value leader, and then a properly trained tech uh, service advisor, you're not going to get that. And please understand, it's not that I've gotten paid for every bulb I've ever put in. If I had a ticket on my hoist and it was like ten hours there, I didn't mind jamming a bulb in it for you know free. To help the customer out. I didn't mind jamming wiper blades on, but don't call me up and have me send it to the back for two wiper blades and a bulb check and think that that's going to roll out completely complimentary to the customer. And you're going to do that because you're not going to pay the tech. No, no, no. You can put the wipers on yourself. You can stand out there in front of the customer and look like a buffoon trying to change the bulb out. I'm good with either. If I have to get involved, you got to pay me. And this was, I've, I struggled with it because that was an advisor that him and I had a really good relationship. Like we, we, we worked well together, but it was the principal mm-hmm. that he knew better than to write that up like that. He knew better that like, that if, if I'm not doing anything else on that car, but that I'm not like, you got to change the ball. You got to pay. I can't. That's I can't complacency pay. though. You, you, you brought a you had a good relationship, which means that individual wasn't truly 
on your side, right? That individual was looking for the advantage of having somebody he knew or she, I don't know who, he or she knew that you'd get the, bring the car in, get the job done, find it out quickly, get it back outside. They could trust that you were going to do that successfully. And they built enough trust with you that they think, you know what, I'll get them on the next one or I'll get them on the, again, that, I, I so dislike that phrase because that is, that's complacency, laziness, and be, and fundamentally taking advantage of another human being. That, that's unacceptable. Now, there are things that service leaders can do to try and combat that. And sometimes there are super exceptional circumstances. But again, no other human should say you're not getting paid for that, even though you work for it. That's that's unacceptable. It's, hey, Mrs. Smith is here at 459 with a flashing light on her on the left side. Can you do me a solid to make sure it's not a bulb? Can you can you take two seconds and, and check it out? If it's something that you read need real diagnostic on, let me know and we'll write a work order and we'll do whatever. Do you mind doing that? Yes or no? And if the answer is no, they need to be okay with receiving the no as much as okay with receiving the yes. Yeah, but that's not how they dictate it, right? Because they know if they dictate it that way, they'll get way more no's than yes. Whereas it's just easier to write. If they get way more no's than yes, it means they're not doing their job the rest of the time as successfully as they should be. Certainly. Yeah. But instead, it's just easier. Uh, well, here's here's the example, Jeff. If, if, if you have 20 techs in a shop and they're being dispatched properly and they all have a great CP warranty mix, probably I'm, I'm, I, my data point at this point is around 90%, 90% CP, 10% warranty. Good shop. Believe it or not, that is, that is a good number. That's not a great number. That's a good number to target. There isn't many in the shops that I've done data diagnosis on for warranty CP mixes. Most are... 75% and up. It's not 50-50. It's 75% and up. There are some techs in those batches that are 75% and lower, but they're usually the hourly people that are being paid to do just warranty engines or just transmission repairs, and they're being paid hourly. So it doesn't matter their mix as much. If you've got a whole shop that's hitting a good CP warranty mix, they're getting trained, they're, they, they feel like it's home when they walk into work, many of them do you think are going to say no at 459 to check that out? Probably not many. Right. Yeah. Probably not many. And the ones that do say no all the time, you probably won't last on the team that long because if the whole team's positive and the whole team is, is making good money, not necessarily amazing money, but they're all making good money. They're all in a positive headspace. One of them is going to say yes to it because yeah. it's convenient for them tonight it's like they don't have to go to their kids' uh, kids' ball practice. They don't have to take their wife out to dinner. They don't have to go do get groceries or whatever the case may be. Like, I got 15 minutes. I made 14 hours today. I don't mind checking out Mrs. Smith's ball. Not a big deal. And you've probably met uh, no different than I have. Probably three, four, five hundred techs in your career, and you know probably most of them on a good day would probably still say yes to it as long as it's prefaced with a yes or no question, not a you need to do this. Mm -hmm. Because as technicians, you and I both know we don't like being told what to do, <laughs> especially when it comes to our pay. It's yeah, we're very, very <coughs> self self motivated, self driven, uh, self 
um, we handle our own stuff is what I'm trying to say. Right. Without too much, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not just a routine. It's when, when our whole lives are, are solving little problems and, you know, adapt and overcome. We do that without even thinking about it anymore. Right. It's just, it's so ingrained in us. Yeah. I have a big problem with, you know, I have a big problem with hypocrisy, dishonesty, and, and people micromanaging me thinking that I'm, I'm, I, I need to be told how to how to get to the from point A to point B on that. You know, uh, no, I've done thousands mm-hmm. of them, and you know, every worst case scenario, I've already seen it. So, cool, thanks, got this. You know, that's the most polite way that I can say anymore to, you know, hundred percent. Yeah, and you bring up another little th- another thing. We're mechanics. We fix things for a living and we fix lots of little things. As a mechanic, when we walk in the shop and we see a dozen things broken in the shop, that's literally like telling someone who's OCD that they're not allowed to knock on the door three times. Like it's instant. You walk, it's like, oh, that's broken. That's broken. That's broken. That's broken. I can just, I just need a $10 part and I could go and fix that in 10 minutes. Yeah. But they're not allowed to order the $10 part because they're not allowed to order parts to fix a shop or they're not allowed to do that or they're not. A- Somebody else has to do that and it's on the list of things to do. I'll get to it. It's literally driving anxiety through the roof that of a 10-minute job that might require a $20 part or something like that or whatever the case may be. I've seen it so many times. It, we are fixers. We fix things. We are professional professional fixers. Allow us to fix the small things so that we can go on with our day and make people money. So give me your recent development You, from kind of to make a lateral shift here. Did you, did you give up wrenching? Because you were at a power sports store mm-hmm. and you bought yourself a motorcycle. It, so you kind of completely walked away now from, from the wrenching thing for a living? And are you just doing mm-hmm. this now? Yeah. Right on. So no. So yes, yes, no, yes. So I'll try to make it succinct. So I got an opportunity to come on board with uh, Russell Hill and Rick Eckert, co-founders of Fixed Ops Marketing. So they sell a, a solution for the fixed ops department for parts, service, and, and uh, accessories. And it's to help dealers, their online presence. It's an automated process. It's really cool. It's it's super cool. I'm still learning. I'm still a lot of things to 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 really help out there. But I'm I'm selling product. I'm I'm helping technicians by bringing more customer pay stuff to the service drive so I can get into the shop. So fundamentally, what I've done is found a way to scale up what I'm doing because wrench turners. I need to learn to sell. I need to learn how to properly create the product that more dealers can. Uh, have access to more access to the data that I'm acquiring so that they can help more. So I needed money to invest in wrench turners because it really is an investiture. So I've walked away from the bench for a couple of reasons. One, it's allowed me to work from home. So it allows me to continue to be primary care for my son. But the big is it's a, a significantly more money than I was making on the bench. And all of the skill sets that I have learned over the last 20 odd years on the bench, behind the desk, behind the big, in the big chair, working with all of the different people I have in my career, working with software developers, working with digital marketers, working with dealer principals and so on and so forth has led me to a point that I can talk shop to, to leaders of, of the dealership. I understand their language 
and understand the language in the shop so that when a, a, a service leader that's never worked in the shop or a GM that's never worked in the shop, and I'm talking about the metrics they understand, but then can explain how that affects the shop, I become very valuable to a lot more people. And it means I can do a lot better for myself and my family. The segue is, no, I didn't buy the motorcycle because I got a new job. I bought, I've been planning on buying the motorcycle for, for yonks. It's just, it happened out, all happened at the same time. And as things do, when it rains, it pours. Thankfully, it was all positive. Yeah, so I've got an opportunity to, to work for Russell and, and Rick. Uh, I've started to, to see major benefit in myself in that regard. I have to pare down some of the stuff that I've been doing up to this stage because I wasn't working 45, 50 hours uh, in business. I was literally walking into work at 9.30, walking out of the shop at 3.30, taking care of my son in the morning, taking care of my son in the afternoon. So it's allowed me a little bit more flexibility in that regard for him, which is awesome for our family. Yeah, uh, I'm going to be able long-term to invest in wrench turners so I can build out the platform the way I truly see it work. because. I've done a whole bunch of surveys to date and I haven't done an, I haven't got enough data yet to publish it to say, you know, you can access this and you can do some, you know, drop downs and statistics on your own self. Once I get to about a threshold of about a thousand texts on the survey, I'm going to start publishing that in a way that is accessible so that both service leaders and technicians can go, Hey, I'm, I'm a technician that's level three in the trade, 15 years, working at a Chevy dealer in Ohio. And the goal is to have that data so they can filter, 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 and go, hey, there is technicians like me, ballpark, at least at this stage, ballpark, and they're making this much money, right? right? The cool thing about the survey is I also have, and that's why it's called wellness survey, is at the end of the survey, technicians are, are answering five questions with regards to their mental wellness, you know, how their the quality of life, the quality of life portion overlaid on things like productivity, quality of life overlaid on things like in income, training, and so on and so forth is interesting because the patterns also emerge. I, I talked earlier about income levels and training. You look at quality of life and income, the quality of life currently versus their income is just as staggering. So you look at the folks that are at the bottom end of the quality, you know, they think their their life is awful or bad things have happened in their life or whatever the case may be, the low end of the spectrum, not all of them are on the low end of the income. I was just gonna say that. Some of the some of the folks that are the the most unhappy with life are also the ones making the most amount of money. Yeah. So there is a at this point in the number of, of submissions that I have, there is a a financial line that crosses with, you know, it's a, like kind of like this as it goes up. There's a line that it crosses where income stops being the priority and their quality of environment starts to become the higher priority on the list of things. We've got the Shop Life 20, and, and, and those of you who've, who are listening and want to know more about it, I won't go into detail. It's like, go check out my YouTube channel. I've detailed it in there. Go check out my LinkedIn. It's detailed there. But the point is, there is a number right now that averages about $55,000 in the US, it's about $55,000. At $55,000 of income, technicians stop prioritizing pay and they start prioritizing things like mental wellness, work shop environment, special service tools, communication. They all become the priority. So much so that once you hit about $80,000 of income, 
It's not even in the top five. Yeah. Not even in the top five priority for them. So when you talk to other technicians as a technician, or you talk to technicians as a service leader, and they say, I need more money, I need more money, I need more money. Don't just say, how much more money do you need? Or say they're full of shit. Ask them about their environment. Find out what's going on in their life. Find out what's going on in the shop. Find out whether they actually like the bay mate that's next to them. Find out, you know, is there a special service tool that's broken that they are having to make work that could be replaced for a hundred bucks that would make their life and 15 other technicians' lives better. And subsequently, more money. Because the concept is, and this is a a Google statistic, if you you go on and look up Google, Google surveyed their employees, roughly 100,000 employees, give or take. And those that answered the question, are you happy? And it, it was a graded scale. Those that simply said they were happy, not ec- ec- ecstatic, you know, love their life or whatever, just above neutral, were 12% more productive than those that said anything else. Mm-hmm. So neutral or lower. On the, the Registrar's Wellness Survey, it's not 12%. It's like 120%. It's stupid how big a difference in productivity it is. It's absolutely stupid. So you look at your whole shop and you look at the three assholes at the bottom. And I mean that from a, from a mental wellness point of view. You look at the three assholes at the bottom, you get rid of them even if they produce. Because they just become a devoid. And this is where we you know you brought up toxic earlier. Yes. And it's like it's a new thing, right? You get rid of those three people at the bottom and do nothing else. Don't do anything else. Just get rid of them. Don't replace them right away. Allow it to sink in that you're taking the mental health of the shop above everything else and see what happens. I've seen it happen. Yeah. This is I preach this because I've, we didn't let somebody go. They left. It was at the collision store. We had a super high producer, mechanical and frame, leave. And we didn't know what we were going to do because finding a person capable of all of the things that they were capable of doing and replacing that person is like full-on unicorn, irrespective of their productivity. Right. Just finding somebody capable of doing what they were doing, irrespective of the product, it was a unicorn. They left within, I think it was, I think, I think it was about a week. The same productivity was going through the shop without that person. Crazy, right? Think about that. Any leader that's listening to this right now, think about your shop. Think about that one asshole in the shop that you really don't want to let go because they're 120, 130%, 140% every day. Yep. Ask their baymates, is he an asshole? If the answer is yes, let him go and see what happens. Mm-hmm. I know you can't afford to let go of technicians right now, folks. I, I know the leaders listening or the, the shop foreman listening is like, I, 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 got, I got no techs. I, I got, I, guess what? You got no techs because they're leaving because of this asshole. Exactly. 100%. We, I, I had a foreman like that. The foreman was a working foreman. And it was like... You could feel the happiness suck out of the room when he showed up 45 minutes late every day. It's his thing. He showed up 45 minutes late. He he would, the first five probably jobs that dispatched to his computer, they all went on hold until he got one that was, it was like fishing. Until he saw one that he would make some hours on, and then he would do that one first. Didn't matter mm-hmm. if he had five comebacks. That was just how he rolled. I was, I left before he left, but. I have heard that after he left, whatever they thought he was so specialized and nobody else was going to be able to do what he did, somebody just picked up the ball and ran with it. They started doing it. 
right? As soon as that's what I've seen is as soon as you think somebody is gone and you're not going to be able to replace them, you'd be amazed at the person, the people that have been hanging in the back, maybe wanting the opportunity that they weren't going to get as long as that person was there. Watch them become ignited. It is incredible to see. I've seen it myself. I've been that. I've been that person. All of a sudden, as soon as that person was gone and I started to get more of that kind of work, whew, watch me go. You know, so you're exactly right. It's stop looking always at production. And I understand sometimes like if, if they're the number one producer and you go around and you ask them, is he really an asshole? Some people being the jealous are going to certainly say, yes, he is. But if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck mm-hmm. you know? because I've met lots of great guys that were great producers and they weren't assholes. And I, if you'd asked me if they're assholes, I wouldn't have just, I was, was I jealous that they could outproduce me? Sure. Did I say they were an asshole? No, no, I was honest. So you're not wrong when you say that if, you know, people say he probably is. So there is some jealousy always in shop dynamics for sure, but don't keep toxic people. And that's, but you can, you can do a simple math. This is where service leaders, the ones that aren't taught and because they're not at tech and they, and they don't think to look at some of these metrics, that's why work mix is so important. So I want to get the opportunity to talk to a service leader. It's like, okay, the first, one of the first things that I asked for, you know, I want all kinds of data on the shop. I want to understand what they're producing, what they're working on, you know, what their training is and, and things of that nature. But the other thing is, what's their work mix? You know, who's your top three complainers? Okay, awesome. These three, these three folks. Okay, I need their data for the last 30 days. What's, how much CP do they do? How much warranty do they do? How much internal do they do? And how many hours do they produce? Okay, and, and look at the percentage. If the, the three biggest complainers have like a 75% or less CP to warranty rate, well, no shit, they're going to complain. They can barely make money because they're doing so much warranty and not enough CP to make up for it. They're going to complain. Okay, so what's the next step to that process? Look at their dispatching. Is your dispatching actually set up properly? And if it is set up properly based on their training level and their capability level, okay, what's happening in the shop for them to get that such a different mix to the other 17 techs in the shop? Why are they getting so much more warranty than the rest? Well, then, okay, pull 10 work orders from each. Guess what? It's all the hardest work. Yep. They're doing all the hard work. Yep. What happens? Get three other techs that are just as capable, force feed them a whole lot of warranty for two weeks straight, give those other three a break and give them nothing but jam for two weeks and see what happens. Does their mentality change or are they still complaining? Is two of them still complaining and one has changed the tune? Well, then the two that are complaining after getting two weeks of jam, guess what? They're going to complain no matter what. Show them down the road. But you've looked at data. If you're screwing with somebody's wallet, Effective, and that's effectively what it is. If it's if they're, the dispatching is not being reviewed and the warranty mix, uh, the warranty CP mate labor mix is not being reviewed, yeah, they've got something to complain about. If you've alleviated that and they're still complaining, yeah, they're probably always going to complain, but there might be other things that are small to complain about, like special service tools, like the shop being broken, like tools being broken or missing or whatever, whatever. Shop dynamics can be looked at. But in all likelihood, if you get somebody who's made 80 hours in a week, after making 30 hours a week for three months straight and they're still complaining, 
they're probably just going to always complain and they need to be shown the door. Yeah. Toxic individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. This was, uh, I look, appreciate it. I look forward to this for a very long time. And I know we had some schedule. You're, you are a super busy man. Like I said, you pump out a ton of content and I, I everybody listening, you need to, you need to check out Joshua on, in, on all platforms and hear what he has to say, because it's, you can learn a lot from it. And, um, I mean, when I, when I, I felt like a kinship as soon as I saw your podcast, you know, three, four months ago, cause I'm like, there's a guy with a similar story to mine and he's a fellow Canadian. He's doing a podcast. I think I'm going to do what Lucas is saying. I'm at least going to give it a try. Not because I like, don't <laughs> I mean like if you could do it, anybody could do it. That's not what I'm trying to say, but you know what I mean? Like I was like, okay, so he's got very similar experiences to me and he's up here talking about it. I might as well do the same thing. And, and you know, I, I wish I, I'm glad you, I'm glad you took the leap. Yeah. Cause like I said earlier, I think before we were recording, we need the perspectives of as many human beings as we can so we can talk about it from every perspective we can so we can come up with some logical objective solutions to some of the major challenges that our industry is facing yeah is let's let's be real yes there is a, a apprentice because i i believe that there's an apprentice shortage it's not a technician it's an apprentice shortage and as many leaders that say you know there's a technician no you're not fostering apprentices yeah you're onboarding young folks into our industry they're not understanding what's going on. They're not, there's not enough tenured technicians teaching them and willing to teach. So they're not getting that journeyman apprentice journey. Yeah. Literally speaking. They're not getting that journey. So they're they're leaving because it's screwed. So let's talk about all of that that's going on. Let's come up with some real solutions, some real objective solutions so that we can. A, improve the trade for ourselves as as mechanics and technicians. B, truly make some money because those out there that are are thinking about the entire business as their own business and bettering themselves and bettering the industry, they're making good money. Yeah. So let's let's get together. Let's talk about it. And for those of us, and this is humble break, I had to grow a set to publish the first episode. And more importantly, I had to grow a set to actually record the first episode. And I'm thankful that you you grew the set to do it yourself because I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate your perspective. I appreciate someone who's willing to say what's on their mind and not filter it and actually say, I disagree. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I owe it all I owe it all to Lucas because they cut that very first episode I ever recorded. Not not of my own podcast, but the very first one I did for them. Mm-hmm. This was like, it caught me at a perfect time when I was, I was unemployed. I was angry. I was like, I had a reputation for being exactly what I was jaded. And, um, I mean, it just, it just, it just took off, you know? And that, that wasn't a new thing for me. I'd been on Facebook groups talking for talking shit for years about what I disliked about it and, and calling down the people that, Oh, I, I, I turned 200 hours last week. Okay, let's see the paperwork. Oh, you don't have it? Okay, mm-hmm. next person. What did you fix, actually? Did you actually solve a problem, or did you just hook up a bunch of flush machines in a row? It looked like a Via Rail train. Congratulations. I'm not impressed by you. Next. And that was me for 10 mm-hmm. years, right? Trying to shift the the focus away from the number and on to the ability. Not the ability to produce a number, but the ability of what can you do if I put you, tools in your hand or I put a 
a scan tool in your in your hand. What can you do? I'm not interested in your hours. And their podcast and all I've known Lucas a long time and all my ranting and everything, it just it the stars aligned. So I never lacked the the balls. If anything, now I'm I'm like a dog at the end of the chain, and there's so much more that I want to say and so much more that I want to do and so many more people that I want to connect with and have, you know, conversations with. I mean, when I think about some of the 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 dealer principles I would love to sit down and talk with and go, do you do this? Because I've worked with somebody that did that and they were a piece of trash for doing it. And I hope that you never do it. If I could start to have those kind of conversations, huge change, huge change for me. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I have to always pull myself back and check is Lucas says to me all the time, he says, seek first to understand. And that's what I'm trying to do. And that's, that's why I'm here. And you know, I, I hear you do it a lot and, and I just try to follow that. So I want to thank you, man. It's been, it's been, this has been a blast. Hey, if you could do me a favor real quick and like comment on and share this episode, I'd really appreciate it. And please, most importantly, set the podcast to automatically download every Tuesday morning. As always, I'd like to thank our amazing guests for their perspectives and expertise. And I hope that you'll please join us again next week on this journey of change. Thank you to my partners in the ASAR group and to the Change in the Industry podcast. Remember what I always say, in this industry, you get what you pay for. Here's hoping everyone finds their missing 10 millimeter, and we'll see you all again next time.